out. And the digital clock, I found out, afterwards is six minutes fast. So I've got that buried in. So if we go, you know, if we go like who knows when, it's all because of all the weird stuff. And, and that's just the way it is. But, um, but it kind of fits in with our world and everything else going on. And, and it really fits in if you go in and look at Hosea and, and, and everything that's going on through there. But, um, but, but in the midst of, of everything, what a crazy year as, as we come in and, and, and look at, at everything that's uh, taking place. And then we come in and, and we realize that we have people in our church who are a part of our church family who every week they're looking at us through the camera on the back wall. And, and, and you know, every now and then I'll say, well, I saw so-and-so or I saw so-and-so on the, on the uh, stream, you know, so the back of your head is really visible to everybody. You can turn around and wave at them if you want. But, um, <clears throat> but, but you know, kind of coming in and, and then, uh, you know, as, as we do all of that and, and we're coming in, but, but hopefully we're kind of moving back to where we can get, uh, get back together and, and things will resume some semblance of, of normal. But as we do, we've been going through this book of Hosea. We began three weeks ago. We started off in Romans 5.8, and Romans 5.8 is, is kind of the theme of all of it. It's the extravagant love of God, and Romans 5.8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He extended his grace and mercy to us before we ever reached out to him, before we were even able to understand our condition and our need for him. God awoken us that need for him. So <clears throat> this is the fullness of it all, and it's the basis for our hope. Our hope is founded in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And today we're going to take a look at the, the faithfulness of God and, and our need. And then next week, we'll finish off the first section of the book. The first three chapters make up the first section of the book, and, and this is the, the major section that Hosea is known for. If, if you ask anybody about the book of Hosea, they'll tell you basically about chapter 1 and chapter 3. So, so that's where it will come in because it's the story of Hosea marrying Gomer, and, and it's a vivid picture of the grace and the mercy of God. And as, as we look at it, Today, it's also a picture of the holiness of God and, and the discipline of God in our lives. In Hebrews 12, 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So as we look at this, God wants to work in our lives and, and train us for something better and greater. So as, as we come in, in, in the first part of the message today is to trust God to be faithful. We need to trust God to be faithful. Hosea 1.10 through 2.13 is, is really an interesting passage in light of what we did last week. Last week we looked at and God said, this, this is where it is. Um, I want you to go marry a wife of whoredom because my people have whored after other gods. Um, I, um, you're going to have children. So Hosea has these children. The first one's named Jezreel. Jezreel is, is a place associated with destruction. The second one is named No Mercy, a little girl named No Mercy or Unloved. Nobody names her girl that. Um, and then the next one is Not My People. So God is saying, you are not my people. And maybe Hosea was saying, this is not my child even. We don't know. Um, so as, as we come in, we, we see this, and, and God is saying this is, there is going to be a severe reckoning about to take place in this nation because you've abandoned me. And now we come in to, uh, 
to verse 10 and he says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So as, as we look at this book, I mean, God has called out unfaithful Israel. He has charged them with being unfaithful. He's painted in vivid strokes by telling Hosea to marry a wife who is a prostitute. And, and he says, this is a picture of the, the harlotry of my people with Baal, of them selling themselves out to false gods. And, and then the house of Israel, he goes on, the house of Israel is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. It will be no more. And God will show no, no mercy as he judges. And he has declared that you are not my people. The marriage that you had with me, the covenant you had with me, it is beyond repair. It is done. It is finished. It is over. And and it's a bleak picture that he paints. And and this comes to pass. In 722 BC, this does come to pass. The ten tribes are wiped out. Samaria falls. The Assyrians overrun it. And, And so the ten tribes of Israel are no more. But in the middle of it all, in verse 10, he steps back and then he says... Oh, but the number of the children of Israel shall be as great as the sand of the sea. And, and those who were unloved will be loved. And those who receive no mercy will receive mercy. And those who were not my people will be called my people. And, and he goes on. And, and it's, um, it's kind of a crazy thing as, as we look at it. But um, he gives them this hope for the future and reminds us that he always keeps his promises and that... That, that these people are going to be like the sand on the sea. So we got to go back and look at what is he talking about here. And we have to go back um, 1,100 years in time. So if we run back from the 8th century B.C. to the uh, 1800 B.C., we have a guy named Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation. So in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So this passage in Hosea, it just seems like it's out of place. But then we come in and and the prophet, we have to understand the prophet, he's not just speaking about right now in 722 BC. He's speaking off well into the future. So he's gone from the prophetic to the apocalyptic in, in, in one regard, and he's moved to a time of the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God. So he's not speaking just to their, own, just to their immediate circumstances. He's also speaking to the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. And, and the ultimate fulfillment, when you go back to Abraham and you begin to trace it, and really you come from Genesis 3 on, is that God has a plan and a purpose. It culminates when Christ comes. So when Jesus is born, that is the culmination. And on the cross, it is finished. It is done. The work is completed. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And and the promise is, is that he's coming again. 
for his people and that all of, all of the redeemed of all the ages shall be gathered together in the new heaven and the new earth. So as we step back, we're, we're stepping in to this fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. And it says, ultimately, they'll be reunited with Judah under one head. It says, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And, and this will be Jesus, that they will be drawn under the, the promise that the Davidic Messiah that has been promised to the people of Israel that they were looking for in the coming of Christ. So this isn't an immediate thing that we're looking at in chapter 1, verses 10 through 2-1, but instead it's a look to the future, to the future promise of God. So as we come in, if you look at it, really it had to seem a little bit crazy because at the time this was written, there were about 60,000 free landowners in Israel. So it was a relatively small nation, 60,000 people. I mean, that's Kenyan Peninsula. You know, it's just not a whole lot of folks. So as, as you come in, it was very small. The Assyrian nation was in the hundreds of thousands in, in uh, comparison to that. So they were nothing. But in God's plan, he would sow and they would come up from the land under King Jesus. This is the promise. So God promises us today as followers of Christ that we have a hope and we have a future and it is something that he will hold and, and we will rise and be with Jesus. And Israel had this 200 year history um, in, in the uh, divided kingdom and they had another 100 years in the united kingdom with Judah. But Hosea moves us out from the near future into the new heaven and the new earth that's been promised in the book of Revelation. In chapter Revelation 21, 1, um, <clears throat> the apostle John, he wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So this is at the very end of everything. And the promises of God, why, why we need to understand that, why it's tucked in here, is we have to understand the promise that God made to Abraham, that promise is for the ages. It's a promise that, that is being fulfilled even today um, through, through Christ and what he has done for us. And the promises of God, they don't depend on us. We cannot negate the promises of God. Our nation could go um, totally down the tubes and follow false gods and, 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 and fall apart and exist no more. That would not change the promises of God. It would not change the faithfulness of God because the promises of God are sure and they do not depend on us. They depend upon him and his character and his character is true and real. In 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Those are words of comfort to us that we have to understand that God is always true to his promises and always true to his word regardless of what's going on around us. 1 Corinthians 1.9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, God made this promise to Abraham. He kept the promise, and the promise is still playing out today. <clears throat> and if you go back and you look at the promise, the promise that God makes <clears throat> over in Genesis, and, and you come in into that, it's in Genesis 15, and in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, he, he tells him, he says, I want you to take uh, so many animals uh, and, and you're to cut them in half and the birds. And, and he cuts them in half and he lays them there. And then at sundown, the two pieces are there. And it says at sundown, the presence of God, like a fire, passes through the pieces of the animal. That seems so, so bizarre to us. I mean, when you think about that, it's just like, he told him to do what? Like 
cut, cut calves in half and stick them there or, you know, or a lamb or whatever it was, a ram. You know, yeah, well, that was common in their day and time. You know, for us today, if, if I want to make, uh, uh, if I want to do a contract with you or a covenant with you, the way that that is do- done is we draw up papers or maybe have an attorney draw up papers and then we sign those papers and those papers are notarized with witnesses saying that these are legally binding documents. And then sometimes people try to weasel out of the contract, right? Because that's the way we are. When God makes a covenant, it's a whole different thing. And in their day, it was a whole different thing. When you cut those two animals in two and you lay them down there and you walk through the pieces and the two parties in the covenant, each of them walks through the pieces, what they're saying is, if I break my word, may I be as this animal cut in two. It's saying this has been cut in blood and it is for life. It cannot be violated and the violation of it would be the violation of life to to take the life. So it's a serious thing. But as you come in in Genesis 15, the, the interesting part, this is the interesting part of this covenant because in covenants through there, you'll see people cut covenants with one another. But in this instance, God cuts the covenant. Abraham didn't cut the covenant. Abraham is asleep and he goes in and then God does it. This is a covenant that is a covenant of divine commitment. It's not a covenant of human obligation. Huge difference. You see, if, I'm, if, if you're counting on me or I'm counting on you, the only thing that we can really count on is that we'll let each other down. Because we're human beings, right? I mean, we, you know, ultimately, some way, somewhere, somehow down the road, we'll let each other down. And, and we know that, and, and because we, we um, understand that, we, we mend our fences and we move on. But, in this instance, this covenant will never fail because it's a covenant of divine obligation, and God never fails in His promises. So the promises of God are sure, and they're not based upon us. And that promise wasn't built on Abraham. It was built on God. And and as God made it, this is an amazing promise for us today because He promises that when we truly enter into covenant with Him, we belong to Him forever. This is the promise that, that Christ has made to us. In John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Now think about that. Think about that for a minute. Jesus said that this is a, this is a promise of God that is obligated by God. And he says that everyone who is given to me belongs to me and you cannot take them out of the hand of Christ. What Jesus is saying is when we come to him, we belong to him and he will hold us and he will make it possible for us to live a life of faithfulness to him. He is the one who works in us. Why is it so important to to us today? That, that it is Jesus who holds us instead of ourselves? Why? Why is that important? Um, it's, it's important because the truth of the matter is covenants of human obligation sometimes work out well and sometimes they don't. But a covenant of divine obligation, that's a covenant that's forever. That's a promise that's forever. That's something that God does and holds for us for all times. So... Um, 
as we come on, oh man, this stupid iPad. I hate this thing. Oh gosh. My notes are covered half a, oh, well, there we go. It came back. Um, I don't know why it does this, but I just want my book to work. All I want is the book on there to work. And all of a sudden, it, I, I go to swipe the page, and it pops up the news. I don't care about the news. The news is bad. <laughs> Look, let's just say it right now. There is no good news. If, if, you want, if you want good news, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have a whole lot of it. It's just chock full of it. As a matter of fact, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it's just chock full of good news. Chock full. It'll tell you everything about every problem that we have today and where it comes from and how to fix it with a good hope for the future. But that stupid news app, it ain't nothing, man. It's just got nothing in it that's any good. So anyway, we're in Hosea 2.2 2 through 13. And it's a, um, in that, the, the second point is, um, you know, we can trust God to be faithful to his promises and, and also that the God who made me is the only one who can fully satisfy me. The God who made you is the only one who can truly satisfy you. You're not going to find satisfaction ultimately outside of God. You may find satisfaction for a while. You may find pleasure for a while. You may find fulfillment for a while. You may find it, but ultimately you're going to want more. You're going to want the next adventure. You're going to want the next thing. You're going to want the next whatever it is that you're chasing after because every time you chase after something other than God and you get it, what you find out is it ultimately can't deliver. It's only good for a season. It's like this stupid iPad. It worked great until they did this update stuff. <clears throat> so... Anyway, when, when we come in there in, in Hosea chapter 2, um, verse 2, it's a little long passage here, but it says, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. That's, that's drastic. God's saying, I'm going to take everything. She's going to be stripped of everything. There will be nothing left because she is chasing after the wrong thing. And then he goes upon her. He says, and upon her children also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So God says, look, she's just chasing after other gods. And she's saying that it's the other gods. It's not the God of heaven who is providing my needs. It's not Yahweh who is providing for me. He is not the one who is giving me the sustenance of life. He is not the one who is satisfying my soul. He is not the one that I trust to provide for me. Oh no, I'm going after my gods. I'm going after everything out there. So God says in verse six, he says, therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them out, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then 
than now. So he goes on, he says, you know what? She's going to go and go and go, and she's not going to find. The more that she chases after these gods, the more empty she will come up. And, and then ultimately says, you know what? I'll go back to my first husband then. This one isn't going, I'll go back to this one and see if that works. And God says, you know what? It's not. And, and he goes on in verse 8, and he says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand, and I will put an end to all her mirth her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast, of, <clears throat> feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. So what God is saying is she's going to chase after other gods and, he, and she's going to use the things that I gave to her to worship these false gods. I'm taking it all back. I'm going to strip her bare. And then she can wonder what happened. And so we have to understand that in all of it, as she went on and on and on, what God is saying is she's not satisfied. She is never satisfied. Faithless Israel cannot be satisfied and they had turned to other gods and deceived themselves into believing they could find out satisfaction outside of Yahweh. Um, her pursuit led to full-on idolatry and the inability to see that every good thing that she ever had came from God. So how do you get to this point? I mean, if you go back, you go back to King David. King David, about in, um, in the 11th century B.C., King David fully understood that everything that he had was a gift from God and he worshiped God with the gifts that God had so graciously supplied. When, when the temple, when God leads David to supply, the, to, that tells him that David, that um, Solomon will build the temple, he begins to stockpile and give and the leaders and the elders there in Israel begin to give. And then when they come in, there's this vast amount. In First Chronicles 29, 14, here's David's response. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to offer that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from your hand and of you uh, and of your own have we given you. Now David said, look, we only gave God what he gave us. How am I even worthy to receive from God, to give to God? And <clears throat> I wonder what it was. This is, this is pounds and pounds and pounds of gold and silver and and stuff. I mean, this is millions, maybe billions of dollars worth of stuff in today's accounts that, that these people had given. And, and it was an amazing thing. And at the end of it, David looked at it and he's just, he's, he's down on his face and worship before God. And he says, who am I? Who am I? That I even had the privilege to do this. So he understood because he said, everything I have came from you. This kingdom came from you. My position came from you. My family came from you. You have redeemed me. You have restored me. And, and for Israel, she had drifted so far from God that she no longer understood that he was the source of her provision. 
And she was deceived to the point that she believed the good things she had came from her pursuits. She came to the point of believing that we have built this great nation. We have done this thing. And, and remember, if, if you go into the 8th century B.C., at this time in Israel, this was a time of milk and honey. This was a time where, where the stock markets did nothing but go up. They didn't really have a stock market, but if they did, it did nothing but go up. Everything went up. Their wages went up. Everything was just getting better and better and better. And they were becoming more and more callous to the needs of the people around them. And the poor people got poorer and poorer and poorer. They didn't care about anybody but themselves. And here's what God said in Hosea 2.12. He says, And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a force, and the beasts of the field shall, shall devour them. You see, God was having none of it. He was having none of it. He was having none of their pride. He was having none of their, their faithlessness to his marriage covenant with them. And instead, he was telling him, this marriage is done. It's over. You are faithless. You are faithless to me, and I will no longer be faithful to you. This has come to the point of severity. He's going to bring her to the point of utter dissatisfaction and destruction for forgetting who she was. She forgot who she was. And what he's saying is, you know what? You'll go and you'll get your new wine and you won't be satisfied. You get your oil, you won't be satisfied. You will partake of the things around you and you won't be satisfied. You'll want more and more and more and you'll go after more and more and more and you'll always be coming up empty because you forgot who you are. And it's a common theme throughout the history of God's people. If you read through the scriptures, you're going to find this. You'll find it over and over and over again. The book of Judges is maybe one of the biggest examples of it, that the people would follow God, then they would chase false gods. They would chase false gods. They would find that they were broken and empty and wanting, and they would cry out to God, and they would get back on the circle again. And they go around and around and around on that merry-go-round. And, and that's the way it is, you see, because... We become comfortable in our own resources. We become comfortable in our abilities. And we forget how we got to where we are. You see, the gifts of God <clears throat> become ours. And then we use them for our own purposes and our own satisfaction. And God never intended for us to forget the source of provision, nor does he intend for us to refuse to enjoy the gifts that he does give to us. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a two-edged thing as, as we come in. But, but, you know, it's so easy for us today. You know, we can look back at Israel at the 8th, 8th century B.C. You know, that's so far off that it's just kind of something that you read in the book. But when you understand that the 8th century B.C. was a whole lot like the 21st century America, and, and you come in, and we look, and we come in, and, and we see, and, and, and then we go in, and we go, you know what? I worked hard for this. I got it. I worked hard. I, 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 I've earned this. This is mine. And, and I'm not saying that you didn't work hard. Don't get me wrong. But we forget that God put us in a place 
where it was possible for that to happen. Do you think for a moment that if you were born in Haiti, that you would live in the house you live in today? Liberia, where Dave and Trudy went. And, and it's uh, just to, to give somebody a package of crayons is a big deal. You see, God put us here. He put us here at this time for a purpose. He has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And, and the scriptures tell us that he appoints the time and the place that we'll live. And, and he's done this. So, so we have, first of all, we have opportunity. We didn't do anything to earn that opportunity. It was just there. We were born into it. The people who came before us placed it here. And the people who came before them and the people who came before them, we can only build, we can only stand on the shoulders of those who go before us. And ultimately, we have to look at it and say, you know what? It was God. It was God who enabled people, who called godly people to, to form something and to do something and to set down principles that we have. We have some biblical principles that, that make our country work. So we come into that. And, and then, but, but we look and we think, you know what, I did this. And then we forget, you know, we forget sometimes we think, you know what, I've, I've been really smart. I've done things really well. Well, we forget that God gives us our intellect as well. Our intellect comes from God. Our abilities, our skills, everything is a gift from God. Everything that we have comes from Him. And, and that's a great place to be is to know that. And it's a great place for me because sometimes when I'm just not quite smart enough, I remind myself, you know, that's all God gave me. That's all I'm accountable for. I don't have to be any smarter. I can only be what he made me to be. I can work with that and do my best with it, but I'm never going to be at that next level. Because you know what? This is where God's put us. This is what he's done. And, and this is what happens here because he gives these things to us not just for our pleasure, but for our worship. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's both. In 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, it says, As for the rich in this present age, that's us, by the way, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's just a reminder. You see, God intends for us to use our, our wealth, our talents, our time, and all of these things to build His kingdom and to enjoy in the process, to enjoy in the process as we watch Him do amazing things around us. And these people were so far from God that this was about them. It, it was no longer about about accomplishing the things that God wanted to accomplish in their lives. And he was about to allow them to be destroyed because his covenant relationship with them had been broken. It had been broken. I mean, not only had it been broken, it had been trampled into the ground and violated so far that God said, I'm done. I'm done. Because they had failed to worship him alone and the benefits of that covenant were no longer available to them. No longer, he says, I will judge faithless Israel. They are not my people. They left me a long time ago. And these people who are here, I don't know them. And he says, I will judge them for their whoredom. 
Yet what he says in the midst of all of it, I will bring those back who were faithful. In the end, because there were faithful people in Israel, you got Hosea, the prophet of God, you've got others, and he says, you know what? There will be those people there in the end, at, at the end of it all, that, that will be restored, that he will restore his kingdom. So as we come in, we start in Hebrews 12, 11, for, the, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's an interesting paradox. The God who satisfies us when we're at the point of desperation, we can easily relegate to the back seat once he has satisfied us and and replace him with whatever he gave us. And this is the warning. This is the warning in Hosea. Don't take the things that God has given to you and replace him with those things. Instead, keep your eye focused on him and keep your eye focused on what he has given to us because Hosea is comparing this to whoredom and he is pointing out that we're selling ourselves out to false gods. He's pointing out that Israel was selling themselves out for false gods. So when we look at these gods in the next few messages, uh, we're, we're going to see some of these things. But a brief glance kind of brings up some of the things that, that happen in this. Our entertainment, our, possess, our possessions, our position, our power, our wealth, our allegiance, and, and you could throw other things in there. They're all affected by this. And, and how we do that, that's going to determine how strong we are in our relationship with God. And so as we come down, I'd say probably the biggest one for all of us to look at as we come in there is how do we spend our time? Because how we spend our time is going to impact every last bit of this. Every last bit of it is going to be impacted by this because worship takes time. Relationships take time. And if you want to grow in your understanding of God, if you want to grow in your walk with Jesus, it takes time. It takes time. So if you look at, and you look at how do I spend my time, do you have a time that you've carved out on a regular basis? I have a regular time that I spend with God, that I read from the Word of God, that I pray over that Word that God has given to me, that I make that a priority in my life. Because if we're not getting into this very, very basic point, we are rapidly going to become Israel. Rapidly. It's a place of destruction. Because when I come into the Word of God, what happens is, is He reminds me of who He is. He reminds me of what He has given to me. He reminds me of the plans and purposes that He has for my life. He reminds me that He loves me. He reminds me of of the hope that I have for the future. He reminds me of the necessity of personal growth. He reminds me that the next generation is dependent upon this generation. Because you see, we stand on the generation before us. The generation after us will stand on us. They will, they will hear the word of God through us. And we have this opportunity and we have this privilege and we have this hope and we have this understanding that God is faithful. He will always keep his promises and that he will hold us close to him and that we have an obligation to not drift, to not drift away 
from who we are. Even as followers of Christ, it's easy to drift and forget about the things that really matter. And Hosea is, is this stark reminder of what drifting does in our lives and in our nation. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the hope that you've given to us in Jesus. We praise you that you promise that when you redeem us, you hold us in your hand and nothing can take us from you, not even ourselves. We praise you for the many different stories that you have in your word that, that just show us our nature in your nature and the hope that you have for us as well as the expectations. And Father, we pray that as your people, we would be fully given to you, that we'd be faithful people, that we would be a faithful bride, that we would be faithful covenant partners, that we would not only fully enjoy what you've given to us, but that we would fully enjoy it by giving it to you in worship, by acknowledging that you're the giver of all good things, by knowing that each day and by watching you work in our lives and the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we wrap up today, I want to encourage you to think, you know, how am I growing in my walk with Christ? What is it that you're doing to move you to that next step? Would you stand as Greg leads us?